All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, the small but efficient Royal Canadian Navy is in the midst of its biggest ever peacetime naval recapitalization effort. Canada has a storied naval history that is honored each May with an observance of the Canadian Navy's contribution to the Battle of the Atlantic. Naval historian and author Roger Litwiller will be here to dive deeper into Canada's rich naval lore. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The Russian Navy intelligence ship Yuri Ivanov passed westbound through the Strait of Gibraltar May 5th, continuing a steady exodus of Russian warships leaving the Mediterranean Sea. According to several unofficial tallies, the four ships remaining in the Med, a frigate, a corvette, a minesweeper, and a diesel-powered submarine, marked the lowest level of Russian naval activity in the Mediterranean since Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. The Russian Black Sea fleet, however, remains in force. The carrier USS Gerald R. Ford got underway from Norfolk May 2nd to begin its first ever fully operational deployment. With Carrier Air Wing 8 embarked, the Ford, with cruiser Normandy and three destroyers, is expected to spend most of the deployment in the European theater, including an exercise off Norway, followed by operations in the Mediterranean Sea. The U.S. Navy on April 28th announced the carrier USS George Washington will return to Japan and relieve USS Ronald Reagan as the Navy's forward-based carrier in the Western Pacific. George Washington is nearing completion of a protracted reactor refueling overhaul that began in 2017 and was originally to have been completed in May 2020. GW will head to Japan in 2024, where she was based in Yokosuka from 2008 to 2015. Reagan will return to the United States in 2024 and enter Puget Sound Naval Shipyard for a major overhaul. Exercise Formidable Shield 2023 kicks off May 8th in the North Atlantic and High North and will run through May 26th. The biannual exercise is led by the U.S. Sixth Fleet and NATO's Naval Striking and Support Forces. 13 NATO and partner nations, more than 20 warships, 35 aircraft, and eight ground units will take part, led by the USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group. The U.S. Navy research vessel Petrel, which fell over in high winds March 22nd while in dry dock at Leith, Scotland, has been righted and was refloated on May 2nd, according to social media posts. The ship, formerly used by the Paul Allen-funded company Vulcan to locate more World War II shipwrecks than any other vessel, was purchased by the U.S. Navy in September and was being refitted in Scotland. The Navy has not revealed the extent of the damage to the ship from the dry dock incident. And in new ship news, the littoral combat ship USS Cooperstown, LCS-23, will be commissioned Saturday, May 6th in New York City. The Freedom Class LCS is based at Mayport, Florida. Also on May 6th, the Virginia Class submarine Massachusetts, SSN 798, 
will be christened at Newport News Shipbuilding in Virginia. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Okay, well, as we said, we're going to turn our attention this week to north of the border, uh, to our, our, our neighbors to the north, Canada. Um, Canada's Navy is not very large, fairly small, but also quite active, an integral part of NATO. Um, they are they routinely deploy. They routinely deploy worldwide. Uh, it's a it's an active navy. It's a busy navy. It's a small navy, and it has a great naval heritage. So with us today is Roger Litwiller. He's an author, a historian. Um, he's Canadian, and uh, he's gonna 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 kind of give us some insight into the Canadian Navy. So welcome to the podcast, Roger. Well, thank you, Chris. And Chris, I really appreciate you having me here. So this weekend is, is, is kind of appropriate that we're doing this now. Uh, this is Battle of the Atlantic weekend. Every year um, in Canada, there's a, there are commemorations of uh, Canada's contribution to the Battle of the Atlantic. This is World War II. This, of course, was uh, the, the effort to resupply Europe, to build up, the, uh, build up Europe from from, the, from North America, from Canada and the United States. Of course, Canada was in the war beginning in the fall of September uh, 1939. Uh, it was another uh, more than two years before the U.S. got in the war officially. But uh, this was a major effort. The expansion of the Canadian Navy in World War II was absolutely astonishing. Even today, uh, people talk about you know, the, the, the American buildup in World War II, which was truly impressive. Canada really came from almost nothing to become what was the third, by 1945, the third largest Navy in the world. Um, can you talk about the, the, this Battle of the Atlantic commemoration, what it means to people, what the Navy tries to do with it, and a little bit about the Canada's naval heritage here? Absolutely. The Battle of the Atlantic um, really was a, a, a national effort uh, on the part of Canada. And it wasn't just fought by the Canadian Navy and, and the uh, merchant sailors. It, it really was nationally important. Uh, as you mentioned, Canada entered the war right in the first days uh, in September of 1939. And, and for the Navy, the war started that very day, you know, September 2nd uh, of 39, when uh, the passenger liner, liner Athenia was torpedoed two hours after war was declared. And on board that ship was the first Canadian casualties of the war. Uh, and the first merchant sailor to be killed in, that, in the war. And the first woman merchant sailor to be killed in, in the war. So, you know, for many, you know, they discuss that first year of the war as a phony war until Germany invaded uh, uh, Belgium and France later in 40, there was no phony war for the Navy. Their war started in the opening hours, and by that invasion in Europe in 1940, had already been fighting every day on the Atlantic against the German U-boats. And by the time 1940 came along and Europe fell, Britain truly was alone. They had nowhere else to turn to. And their nearest ally was Canada. And being part of the Commonwealth, you know, Canada stepped up, ramped up production right from 1939 on. And 
England needed basically everything. You know, they needed weapons, they needed aircraft, they needed tanks, they needed ships, they needed material, they needed ammunition, they needed food, they needed fuel, they needed supplies. And Canadian industry ramped up, started production, and by 1943, Canadian industry was producing every week uh, six ships, 80 aircraft, 4,000 motor vehicles, 450 armored vehicles, 940 armored or heavy guns, 13,000 smaller weapons, about half a million artillery shells, 25 million cartridges, and 10 million tons of explosives. And that doesn't include, you know, all the foodstuffs and, and uh, all the other millions of pounds of, of supplies. And all that had to get to England by ship. So that's the merchant navy. These ships were formed into convoys. Within 15 days, the first convoy left from Canada, Halifax, to the UK. And those convoys were set on by the U-boats. So the Canadian Navy had to grow equally as, as steadily. Uh, starting the war with six destroyers and four minesweepers, uh, the Canadian Navy steadily grew to over 400 ships by the end of the war. Uh, 2,000 sailors were enrolled at the beginning of the war. Over 100,000 sailors uh, men and women were serving by the end of the war. And Canada ended out uh, escorting the bulk of the convoys across the Atlantic um, as the war developed. So by 1942, uh, a large majority of the convoys were being escorted by Canadian ships. And, um, and the progression of the Canadian Navy just continued on through there. So it was always impressive, um, you know, the the convoys formed up in Bed, what Bedford Basin now. It was, it's this great big body of water that is part of, of Halifax in Nova Scotia. So the part yep. of Halifax um, on the Atlantic seaboard. Uh, and you go, you go past Halifax and it opens up into this great big area. It was a huge protected anchorage. And that's where a lot of these uh, convoys would, would form up. But all of Atlantic Canada was involved in anti-submarine warfare. Um, you know, Newfoundland was a big base. Uh, there, was, there was big bases in you know, Newfie, Newfie, St. John, um, all this. Um, I, I think even today, you know, the, there's there's a one ship in, in Halifax, museum ship. Sackville is the last of these flower class Corvettes. Flower class Corvette was something the British came up with uh, right at the beginning of the war. It was an expediency. We need we need small escorts fast so you talk about mobilization uh they came up they they had already done a survey before the war of, of possibilities they came up on this norwegian design of whale whale hunters um small vessels mm -hmm. but small yards commercial yards could build them they weren't they were not sophisticated at all reciprocating engines single screw 16 knots but um they fanned out this um design uh, to all these all these smaller British yards and a lot of Canadian yards and the Canadian yards really began this huge output of ships that had just not existed before the war uh, certainly on nothing at this level 
not not at all unlike what was going on in the United States, but there was probably even more of an industrial base in the U.S. than in Canada for this. Canada's output was just incredible, and these ships, you know, they 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 weren't the best um, as the war went on. More sophisticated ships uh, came in and replaced them, but uh, the contribution here was just fantastic. And and without that, the early days of, of World War II, uh, supporting England. Uh, just would not have happened. And it's just, um, it's always impressive. I, I can talk about the, the observances today. My, my, my sense about the Battle of the Atlantic is that uh, uh, this is, in Canada, this is not unlike here in the U.S. We've now uh, had these annual observances in the Battle of Midway uh, on June 4th. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the Navy Heritage Day. It's becoming that way uh, the last 20 years or so. Is my my sense is that's that's sort of Canada's equivalent to this. Is that that fair? Yeah. Well, in Canada, it's the first Sunday in May, right? Um, irregardless of the date that it falls on. So, with that, um, communities across Canada, uh, whether they have a, a naval reserve unit or not, um, or a naval base, you know, it can be a Sea Cadet Corps. Uh, Royal Canadian Legion Remembrance, but there's a, a Battle of the Atlantic ceremony, and, and it's really quite unique. You know the you know uh, the service uh, starts with uh, a calling of the of the ships, and so each Royal Canadian Navy ship that was lost during the Second World War, that ship's name is called. And then a single single ring of the bell is sounded with each name. And, and then that is also done for the uh, sailors of the Merchant Navy, the uh, airmen of the Royal Canadian Air Force that were on anti-submarine patrols over the Atlantic, and uh, the... Um, uh, the gunners that were placed aboard the armed merchant ships as well. And it's also important to note, you know, the Battle of Atlantic wasn't just the Atlantic Ocean. The, the Battle of Atlantic was also felt, fought uh, very hard within the Caribbean, uh, especially going after the tankers coming out of uh, uh, South America and, and Caribbean ports. And it was also felt, fought in the St. Lawrence Gulf and river right inland in Canada. The Germans U-boats penetrated uh, as far as Rimouski, Quebec um, and, and torpedoing ships right inside, you know, Canada's freshwater coast. Roger, this is uh, Chris Cervello. Thanks again yeah. uh, for, for joining us. I, I do want to sort of take a, you know, take what we know and learned about the the Battle of the Atlantic and, you know, think a little bit about today, um, you know, what what lessons can folks from North America or NATO writ large, I mean, what, what can we take from the Battle of Atlantic and, and maybe extrapolate into, you know, what is likely to be high-end competition in the Pacific? I mean, you could easily, you know, one might say you could easily flip it over and say, uh, you, know, you know, instead of facing towards Europe, you'd face towards the Pacific. But I'm sure it's much more complicated than that. But I'd be interested in, you know, what lessons you think still apply today. 
Well, the number one lesson is, is not a new lesson. It, it's actually a centuries old lesson that gets repeated over and over and over again. And that is logistics, logistics, logistics. During the, the Second World War, there was two times where Britain was literally within days and weeks of being forced to surrender. And the first time was when uh, the Battle of Britain was going on and Germany was ready to invade. And the second one was in 1942 when the U-boats were strangling Germany, sinking you know two to three merchant ships a day, cutting off the supply line. They were literally three weeks from starvation in England. That applies today just as much as it did then. 90% of the world's trade still today travels in a merchant ship. When we go to Walmart or any other store, 90% of the stuff on those shelves at some point either traveled by raw material or finished product in a ship, either in a container or a cargo hold. So free movement of shipping, protection of merchant shipping, free navigation is still ultimately the single most important aspect to world trade and world peace. In the United States, you know, we're right around 300 ships and we lament, you know, we need more, 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 more. Um, as Chris mentioned at the top, I mean, the, the Canadian Navy is significantly smaller, although known for its professionalism and known for its tactical prowess. Um, is there a movement within Canada as you start to think about the Pacific, you know, your, your sense of, um, you, you know, will Canada rise to meet a growing Pacific challenge? Or do you think, you know, hearkening back to the Battle of the Atlantic, they will, you will wait uh, for the need to become evident and look to build like you did uh, during the Second World War? Uh, that, that's a tough one to predict. Right. Uh, legacy is uh, First World War, Canada started uh, 1914 with two cruisers, one on each coast. By the end of the war, we had 137. Second World War, we had 10 ships. We ended up with over 400. Canada has a love-forget relationship with their military. Right. Uh, when something needs to be done, the Canadian military gets the job done. And that is the history of the Canadian forces as a whole. Whether it was Vimy Ridge in the First World War or, you know, the Battle of Atlantic in the Second World War, Canadians have that legacy of getting the job done. And we love them. When they're not needed anymore, we have a tendency to forget them. And, you know, the resulting budget cut, cutbacks and downsizing uh, until that day comes that we need them again. Uh, mankind has proven over thousands of years, we will always need our militaries. There will always be a reason for them. Um, you know, I hope it will not be that boom and bust cycle 
Mm -hmm. uh, because as warfare develops and and becomes more technical, you know, being able to throw together a Corvette in nine months like they were in the Second World War is, is not feasible anymore. You know, it takes several years to build a warship. And, and there's no getting around it. There's no shortcuts at this point. So the Canadian Navy is um, building new ships right now. Uh, they have uh, new uh, service combatants that are uh, almost at the building stage. They're, they're finaling up the design stage. Uh, Canadian government is in the process of going through uh, what we require in future capability for submarines and looking at uh, replacing them. Uh, currently, uh, there are two new joint supply ships being built on the West Coast. One is already in construction. Um, and the hull is completely assembled and the steel has been cut for the second one. So there is that expansion. We have not gotten back to the levels that we were pre-World War One or pre-World War II. Um, probably at the levels we would have liked to have been at the start of those wars to be effective, you know, absolutely immediately. Uh, Canadian sailors. You know, highly trained, highly skilled, very professional, and very capable uh, with a strong reserve force, uh, which is also celebrating their 100th anniversary this year, uh, is there to support the regular Navy and fill in as needed, where needed. So Canada is in a much better shape, as, you know, as today, as we were in the past. Well, this is the largest, I mean, at the moment, the Canadian Navy is in the midst of the largest peacetime expansion in history. Um, Correct. It's, it's almost sort of slow motion, um, as a lot of naval programs are. Uh, naval programs take to, tend to take forever for people to decide what to do, and ships take a long time to build and field. Yep. Um, but, you know, you've got this, at, like you just mentioned, the uh, 12 ships of the I mean, actually, up to 15 ships for the Canadian service combatant. This is a Type 26 uh, frigate modification um, from Irving Shipyards and BAE Systems in Lockheed Martin, Canada. Irving Shipyards in Halifax, by the way, is Canada's number one um, defense company uh, by far, even um, which, is, which is something to be said that, that, that the shipbuilding company is there. Um, of course, the Air Force just decided to, uh, to um, last year uh, to go ahead with F-35 uh, procurement joint strike fighter. Um, that is a big deal. That's a major investment. Uh, the frigates are going to be a major investment. Like you said, they're about to begin construction, I think, next year. Hopefully on the first one, they won't start entering service till the 2030s, but, but you got to start. Um, the joint support ships are under construction, and uh, that's C-SPAN in um, North Vancouver uh, on the West Coast. Um, there's also um, you have to talk about the um, the Wolf, the, the Harry the Wolf Arctic offshore patrol vessels, which is, do not have a have a equivalent in the U.S. Navy. These are naval Arctic patrol ships. They are big ships. They're six thousand tons. They're quite substantial. Um, this this is a whole another effort for Canada to assert its uh, sovereignty in the Arctic region. 
um, especially as in, in global warming and more and more areas become open. Uh, there will be six of them built for the Navy. Three are already in service. Uh, two more coming for the Coast Guard. That's a that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, Absolutely. The, the the question right now, the big question, the next step is, like you said, the sub. What to do about submarines? And you, you know, Canada's history with subs is has not been good. Um, late '90s, they bought the four diesel class uh, Victoria class subs from the Royal Navy. Um, and that that's not been a program that has uh, shown great dividends, to say the least. But um, there's there's a nominal requirement now for maybe 12 subs. That's supposed to be in the upcoming um, uh, is it the um, defense policy update that is that that is that is approaching. Um, we'll see we'll see what the what what winds up there. It doesn't look like at the moment like Canada is going to be part of the AUKUS program. That's a nuclear powered program. That would be a whole nother level of discussion that I don't think is on the table right now. But but the Canadian Navy really is in the it's it's in the midst. It's 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 undergoing a pretty good recapitalization effort. That something that's not been happening for several decades. So it. Um, and, and of course, the, the Canadian ships routinely deploy. They, they deploy to the West Coast, uh, West Western Pacific. Um, there's a two-ship formation now, the frigate Montreal and um, support ship Asterix uh, left Halifax in March for a deployment to go out to the, to the Pacific. That's, this is the East Coast, uh, Canada's East Coast fleet. Um, and they, but, but uh, they're en route, but they are at the moment in uh, the Red Sea where they're supporting the evacuation of foreign nationals from uh, Sudan. And the Asterix especially uh, has been of great use. I've seen quite a, I've seen quite a few photos of Asterix uh, resupplying American ships and other, and British, uh, the British frigate Lancaster, um, the American uh, destroyer Truxton is out there uh, and they're being supported by Asterix. And that's the kind of, that was a merchant conversion. We were talking before the show about that. Asterix is, uh, you know, while while Canada was debating about the joint support ships and, and how to move ahead for that, there was a there was a movement to acquire a merchant ship and convert it. It was a fairly extensive conversion, um, and um, we're not. I'm just uh, just a note that um, not everybody appreciated that effort. Uh, the head of the Navy, Mark Norman, at the time, uh, really tried to ram that through and make it happen rather than discuss forever because Canada was out of support ships. All three of them had, had reached the end of their service lives. Um, and that's a way, that's a, a great way for smaller navies to make meaningful contributions to, for example, NATO formations. And um, that ship was, was essentially forced through. And yet for the last few years, while it's been in service, it's been really busy. It's gone out to Japan, it's been out in the Pacific. It's, uh, it's underway now. It's been a really interesting and valuable uh, asset, it seems to me. Would you would you agree with that? Oh, Asterix is an uh, incredible asset uh, built by um, one of our other premier shipyards in Canada, uh, Chantier Davy in Quebec City. And you're right; it was a total. It was a container ship that was completely gutted, stripped down to the deck, and rebuilt as a uh, naval replenishment ship. And uh, I've been aboard it uh, on several occasions. And uh, the capabilities of this ship are phenomenal. You know, it could park itself off 
uh, a Caribbean island completely devastated by a hurricane and uh, provide power you know, for that island, provide food, hot meals, provide water um, for an entire population. Uh, and not to mention, you know, medical resources with the full onboard hospital. You know, the, the capabilities go way beyond replenishment. Right. And uh, the problem came, uh, you had mentioned, it was approved by one government. And then there was a change of government right in the middle of the process, um, which wanted to review uh, the acquisition process. Um, but by that time, um, everything had pretty well been set in stone and canceling the project was not an option or delaying the project was not, a, con contractually was not an option. So Asterix moved forward. And, um, and it's a good thing that, that it, it did. Uh, most navies in the world have their own home waters to look after. And Canada and the United States are probably the only two nations that have to provide naval defense in the Atlantic and the Pacific. But the Canadian Navy actually goes beyond that. We're a three ocean Navy because we have to provide protection and defense of our Atlantic shores, our Pacific shore, and our Arctic shore. And thank goodness that uh, post the War of 1812, the Rush Baggett Agreement was signed, and we don't have to provide defense in our Great Lakes coastline as well, which would make us a four ocean Navy. And that treaty has, has provided goodwill and friendship and trade and uh, mutual protection between Canada and the US ever since 1815. So, but then you add on to that, you know, the responsibilities of a major nation throughout the world. So it's not just the 200 mile limits on both our coasts. It's also operating in, you know, off offshore in the areas of that are protected lesser from threats. So it, it really is a huge responsibility that is jointly shared in North America. That it is. And we thank you all for it. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, our guest has been Canadian author and historian Roger Litwiller. Uh, really great discussion. Roger, thank you so much for being on the, on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, it's time to change the guard for the country's highest military position. Here's Mr. Cervello. Thanks, Chris. By now, many have heard that President Biden intends to nominate Air Force General C.Q. Brown to succeed General Mark Milley as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Since leaving uniform and coming to work on the Defense and Aerospace Report team, I've had the privilege to meet General Brown on numerous occasions, as he often interviews with our colleague, Vaga Maradian. Brown is a thoughtful, experienced, and articulate leader who brings the right temperament and worldview to a position critical to ensuring the joint force is ready to fight and our civilian leaders fully understand the military options at their disposal. 
As chief of staff of the Air Force, Brown is well-respected in the Pentagon and across the force. He has served in leadership positions in the Middle East and in Indo-PACOM, working closely with his Navy and Marine Corps counterparts in both theaters. I commend the Biden administration on making this selection, and I wish General Brown all the best as he works through the confirmation process and, God willing, becomes the next chairman. The men and women of our armed forces will benefit greatly from his leadership and many talents. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavus Ships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye.